You're listening to the Bright City Podcast. To hear more about our gatherings, groups, and what's going on in the life of our church, visit brightcity.church or follow us, Bright City Church, on Instagram. Today's message is from a friend of Bright City, and we know you're going to love it. Good morning, Bright City. I had confidence that you could hear me anyways because I'm Latina. And so either way, you are going to hear the sermon today. Good morning, Bright City. For those of you that are coming in late, don't you worry. There's so much grace. Just have a seat. Uh, hey, quick question. Who got their coffee already? Okay, so there you are, my coffee people. Who here drinks tea in the morning? It's okay if you drink tea. We still love you. We're more of an espresso church, but there's so, it's just the truth. We're not gonna shame you, but just know that the, one day we may have tea for you in the mornings. One day we might. My name's Alexander Hoover, and I'm so glad that you're with us this morning. I get to serve here on staff at Bright City. I'm also on the teaching team here, and it's an honor and privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, we're continuing our sermon series, Speak to the Storm. Speak to the Storm. If you are here for the first time today, don't worry, all of, our all of our sermons are on our episodes for the podcast, so make sure that you download our podcast, Bright City, and take a listen, uh, because they've been really transformational. So the first few weeks, we spent some time unpacking uh, what it actually means to speak to fear. Right, so all of us have experienced fear at some point or another in our lives, unless you're superhuman and haven't. Uh, for the most part, though, we all have, and Pastor Nick and Jess and I spent some time the first few weeks really laying down the foundation for what fear is biblically and how to speak to it. And now we're taking a little bit of a turn. Now we are looking at specifics. We're looking at uh, pain points that we all wrestle with, right? So last week we talked about control and now we're talking about uh, fear of man fear of man yeah so buckle up today's gonna feel a little bit like an immunization shot but it's gonna be good for you it may not feel good for the first few minutes but it's gonna be really good for your soul I promise so uh, what is what is fear of man so fear of man is defined as an epidemic of the soul that can be characterized by peer pressure worry and codependency it's not my definition, it's the real one. Uh, it's the act of placing others before God in your life. It's the, act before, it's the act of placing God before others in your life. From a biblical perspective, fear of man is expressed biblically as a snare. Proverbs 29, 25 says a snare is uh, the trap that keeps us bound up in sin to fear of man. What's a snare? It's a trap. It's literally a noose that's used to trap up animals around their literal neck. So scripture is telling us that fear of man is a literal, it's a trap. It's a noose around our necks. And so you can imagine what that feels like around an animal, right? It's suffocating them. They can't move. They can't breathe. And scripture is saying the fear of man literally feels like that. It literally feels like a trap. Like you've got a noose around your neck, you can't breathe, and you are uh, immobilized, right? You're, you're paralyzed in fear. In the book, When People Are Big and God is Small, Edward Welch describes fear of man as fear in the biblical sense, includes being afraid of someone, but it extends to holding someone in awe, being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping other people, putting your trust in people, or needing people. Fear of man can be seen in fear of rejection, people-pleasing, woof, codependency, fear of not being enough, fear of being too much, 
essentially living for the love of man over God's love for you. So I'm going to stop there for a second, and I want you to find yourself in that. Right? Most of us at one point or another have, have struggled with fear of man. Now, unless you walked in here feeling very you know, confident in yourself, truth is that for the most part, we all just want to be loved. For the most part, all of us want to be loved. And a little bit later on in the sermon, we're going to get to how I know this to be true. But just a show of hands here, who has dealt with wanting to be loved before? Right, that longing of consistently looking for love in all the wrong places. We've all experienced it. I think it's kind of funny though that as adults, we kind of walk into spaces and we're like, I don't need you. I'm cool. I don't need your love. I'm confident right where I am. And yeah, but you know, it's really not the truth. A lot of us really do struggle with wanting to be loved. And the confidence that we show up with isn't really always confidence. Right? Most of the time, we are showing up really wounded. See, a lot of the storms we face today are storms we've left unattended. There are storms we've left unattended. A lot of the storms are unhealed wounds, sin we've left to idle, and beliefs we've come into agreement with. Not every time, right? We know that to be true. Like I said, we spent a few weeks talking about the storms that happen to us, the storms that happen around us, but these storms... Right, the storm we're talking about today, this storm, we actually have some say in. This particular storm, we actually get to have a say in. Right, fear of man. So how do we break free from fear of man? What does it look like to break free from fear of man? My own definition of fear of man is the fear of losing or not obtaining the acceptance or love of someone we really desire wielding so much power over us that it changes our beliefs and our actions. That it changes our beliefs and our actions. It's wielding power over us. So I, I want to tell you guys a little bit of a story because if, if I'm being honest, I am the girl that really does struggle with fear of man. I really do have the propensity to want to live for the love of people. And I have spent most of my life looking for love in just about everything that I could possibly imagine. So I'll tell you a story. When I was around uh, seven years old, so second grade probably, um, okay, so here it is. Lisa Frank, who knows about Lisa Frank in here? Lisa Frank Pens, yeah, my, this is the older congregation. This is the older service. That 9 a.m., I was like, Lisa Frank? And there was like two or three people. I'm like, you guys don't understand. All right, well, sir, I told them to Google it, but y'all know, y'all know, millennials and elders. Yeah, I see you. All right, so second grade, Lisa Frank, I was so obsessed. My mom and I didn't grow up with a lot of money, and so when my mom did buy me Lisa Frank, it was a huge deal. I had the gel pens, yeah, with the glitter. You know what I'm talking about. Men, for you, this is like Pokemon cards, I think. This is something like Pokemon cards or something like that. Maybe it's, I don't know, the little go-karts. But for me, Lisa Frank, second grade. And uh, I also had the scratch and sniff stickers from Lisa Frank, right? You know what I'm talking about. The journals, the notebooks, that's when the obsession started. Lisa Frank made them so beautiful. And my mom had, had bought me a new pack of gel pens. They were so pretty and so glittery, and I had this very favorite one. It was a turquoise gel pen, my favorite one. I brought it to school, and y'all, I was so excited to show it, show it off. I walked around with that gel pen in my hand, showed all of my classmates, told my teacher about it. Again, I didn't grow up with a lot of money, and so this was important to me, okay? It was incredibly important. And it's Lisa Frank, if you know, you know. So I, uh, I'm sitting at this table with a group of girls, 
at my day one school and there's some drama, okay? So there's a little girl sitting next to me who's having a birthday party and she doesn't invite me to the birthday party. Now I'm infuriated, okay? It's already began. Adults, you know how that feels. Don't even play with me. You know what it feels like to be left out of parties. Don't even do that. But at second grade, right? I'm seven years old or eight years old and I overhear her having this birthday party and I look at my friends at the table and I'm like, she didn't invite me to the birthday party. And my, you know, second grade, my friends are like, okay, <laughs> right? It's cool. It wasn't cool for me. So here's what I did. This is where it all began. I took my favorite Lisa Frank pen and I went up to her. Kelsey, you can laugh. It's okay. This is who I am as a person. <laughs> I took my favorite Lisa, Lisa Frank pen and I went up to this little girl and I was like, I'll give, I, I think you're really cool. I heard you were having a birthday party. <laughs> Do you want my Lisa Frank pen? And like, I didn't tell her to invite me but I really was hoping that I could manipulate her enough to invite me. And it didn't work out, she didn't, she didn't take the bait, but I ended, up, I ended up giving her my Lisa Frank gel pen. I went home, I was so devastated, I was crying, I told my mom, and my mom, all she could care about was the pen. And she was like, girl, where's that pen I bought you? <laughs> and I was like, I gave it to her, I wanted to be invited to the birthday party. And she was like, you're gonna go back to school tomorrow, you're gonna get that pen back. Ever had that happen to you? Your parents are like, you will go get the thing you gave them, that is not theirs. Uh, and so I went back to school and I did not ask for the pen back. I actually just hid probably the rest of my life. No, seriously. So I didn't get invited to the party. I didn't get the pen back. And uh, truth is though, that behavior, that type of behavior, it, it really didn't start there for me. There's more to the story. That type of behavior actually started with what I think to be my first wound of rejection. It was with my dad. I desperately wanted my dad's acceptance. Who here has wanted their parents' acceptance? Show of hands, right? It's just, it's the truth. And I think most of us don't want it to be that way, right? Most of us wish that we were just strong enough to not want to be loved by people. But truth is, there's a longing that we cannot get rid of. There is a, there's a wound in our hearts. There's a longing that's always been there. And maybe it's not your parents for you. Maybe you grew up in a home where you felt deeply loved and yet, there is a longing that you cannot shake. You're looking for love in all the wrong places and you're trying to find affirmation and acceptance and love, but no matter how much you work for it, at work, in your family, with your friends, in your community, no matter what you do, that longing isn't going anywhere. And it also can't be filled, right? You're left so disappointed every time you look around. So my wound started with my dad, and my dad um, is an alcoholic. He's a functioning alcoholic. He's what I think to be probably the most high-functioning alcoholic I've ever met. Um, and I didn't live with him for, for a long time. I think I spent probably a little less than a year with my dad at home with my mom. And the time that we spent in the home with my dad was, I mean, it was so unhealthy and so toxic. It was the worst, not one of the worst years of my life, but I really loved my dad. Like I really just wanted to be a daddy's girl so desperately. And I remember one day, uh, my mom had taken me to Walmart and she had, she'd purchased me one of those pink spiky balls. Y'all remember the encaged type of like systems? You know, see, it's the older congregation, I see. Yeah, so Walmart used to have these like, you know, entrapment set up things. Uh, the cages where the balls used to be and my mom let me get one out and we're like 199. I brought it home, I was so excited to play with it. And I remember going up to my dad and being like, hey, Will you, will you go outside and play with me? And he looked at me, and instead of saying, yes, of course, I would love to, 
he said, just go make me a drink. Too tired, go make me a drink. I remember looking over at my mom and I could see, she was in the kitchen, so she could see what was happening. We were in the living room. And all I remember my mom doing was looking up, kind of turning her head over and being just overwhelmed with shame. As a mom, I can just imagine. And she put her head back down, like avoiding an argument. And I looked at my mom and I looked at my dad and I just thought to myself, well, okay, maybe, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. And so I go over to the, the mini bar we had and I'm making my dad the best rum and coke he's ever had. Okay, you can laugh at it, it's okay. It's kind of funny, it's like super toxic, but it's, a, it's my reality. And so I'm making my dad like the best rum and coke he's ever had in his life. I'm mixing it, I don't know what I'm doing, but I've seen enough of this behavior to where I'm like, this is how you make a rum and coke. I bring it to him and he says, he says thanks and tells me to go away. That's when my first wound happened. Now again, it may not be your dad for you and the, and the wound may look or feel different, but there's always a starting place to this. There's always a starting place. There was, there's always a place that we can trace back and look at and say, this, this is where it happened for me. This is where I lost sight of my identity. This is where I, I, I tried to find love in all the wrong places. And I want you to find yourself in that for a second. I want you to just take a moment and think to yourself, Right? Where, where did that happen for you? Where did you begin to look for love in all the wrong places? When was it? When was it that you began to put people above God's love for you? Or have you really ever not known it? Oof. When we fear something or someone, we allow it or them to control us. Their opinions, possible opinions, attitudes, or withholding of love, it literally becomes our master. It really does become our master. It wields so much power over us when we're trying to live for the love and approval of other people. Or maybe it's not love and approval. Maybe it's your ambition. Maybe, maybe it's that you are working so hard to get somewhere that you've placed all of your worth and identity and wanting to just prove to yourself that you're enough and wanting to prove to yourself that maybe you are worth something in this world and in this life. Maybe that's what it is for you. This isn't some superficial or weak topic to address. We see it all in scripture. The reminder that God is who we are to love and honor and not people. Galatians 1.10 says, for am I trying to persuade people or God? Am I trying to please people if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, what's at stake when we live for the approval of acceptance, or approval and acceptance? What's at stake when we live this way? What's at stake when we're, when we're putting the love of other people above God's? What's at stake when we have a higher view of ourselves and of people than God? Because there's something at stake here, and I want us to talk about it. What's at stake? Our calling in the kingdom of God is at stake. Yeah. Our calling, right? We're, we're called to be his chosen people, a royal priesthood sent out for mission. That's at stake when we're living for the love of people. Our authentic identity in Christ is at stake. When we allow other people to tell us who we are, we begin to live that way. Right? And so our identity is at stake in the kingdom of God when we live for the love of other people. Living with safety and security is at stake. 
real safety and real security. The, ones we, the one we really truly long for, that's at stake. When we're, when we're looking to our job and to people, to people and places and things to give us that, that's at stake. True confidence is at stake. The confidence that we all want to live with, the confidence that our hearts yearn for, true confidence in the kingdom of God as sons and daughters is at stake when we do not understand what it means to live from the love of God. That's at stake. Heart transformation, really being transformed into the likeness of Jesus is at stake when we are looking for love in people, when we're looking for acceptance in people or from people. That's at stake. Generational change. The strongholds in your family the impact in our community, changing the kingdom of God and the landscape of what it means to be sons and daughters is at stake when we're living in f from fear of man. That's at stake. Right? We'll do some pretty crazy things to get people to love us, won't we? We go out of our way to become friends we shouldn't be, people we shouldn't be friends with. We'll say things that we don't mean. We'll act different around people who we really want to be loved by. We lose our values or lose sight of our identity, right? We're like chameleons. We just want to be loved. So we'll do whatever it takes. We'll say yes to unhealthy behaviors and patterns in our lives when we live in fear of man. I've seen some of the best leaders in my life be wrapped up in this. I've seen some of the most mature people with so much knowledge be wrapped up in this. I've seen the people who have walked with God for a long time still be wrapped up in this snare, caught up and, and tied up around the neck, unable to live and move with humility and love because they've not tended to the real wound that's underneath it. We fear rejection. We fear embarrassment. We fear assumptions. Oof. Perception. We fear perception. We fear that we will not be loved. And the greatest longing of the human race is to be loved. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, we want to be loved. Something in us calls for it. But really, we're so inwardly focused that our whole lives just become little kingdoms. We totally lose sight of God when we become so obsessed with the idea of wanting to be loved, of wanting to be loved. Luke 4 and Matthew 4 is one of my favorite stories in scripture, and it, it's, it's the story of Jesus being led out into the wilderness. Now here's what I think is so incredible about the scriptures and why this is something that we need to pay attention to. From the very beginning of time, the enemy knew that this would be a thorn in our sides. Adam and Eve fell right into the trap of the enemy. Did God really say he loved you? Did God really say he's given you everything right here? Did God really say that? And what we saw was Adam and Eve fight for love instead of live from the love in the garden. They had everything, abundant life, and they lose sight of it. Right? They're trapped up by the snare, by the lie. Luke 4 and Matthew 4, Jesus is called out into the wilderness. What do we see? Satan says to Jesus, I will give you all of the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you everybody's love. I'll give you all the glory. I will make you famous. I will have everyone love you if you just follow me. 
if you just follow me, I will give you all of what your heart longs for. I want you to sit in that for just a second. There's a reason why Satan shows Jesus all of what he could have outside of God. There's a reason why Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth, all the glory that could be his. There's a reason because he knows that our human propensity, right, there's a gaping wound in our hearts, and unless we grab a hold of it in Jesus, we'll spend our whole lives looking for that. Right? And so there's, there's a pattern here. He does it with Adam and Eve. He does it with Jesus right, in the wilderness. Yeah. There's something that's happening here. Does God actually love you? Have you actually been forgiven? The longing has always been there to be loved and accepted. It's the greatest trick of the enemy, I believe, which is why we're going to talk about it, which is why we're going to look at what it means to actually break free from fear of man. See, pride was the whole crux of Satan's story. He loved to be loved. Satan loved to be loved, you guys. He loved to be worshipped. He loved to be looked at. He loved it so much so that he was willing to give up Jesus. He was willing to give up his identity in the kingdom of God because he was so wounded. He was willing to give up his birthright. He was willing to give up the whole thing just because he deeply wanted to be loved. He loved to be loved. Whew. That was the story of Satan. That was it. And I didn't get to share this in the, first, in the first service, but I'll share it now. What's even more interesting about the enemy is that he already had everything too. Right? Scripture just describes him as beautiful. He had the attention of the people. He was the most beautiful angel. This is so important, you guys. He was in the presence of God. He had proximity to the Father. But he loved to be loved so much that he was willing to give everything up to build his own kingdom. That is our propensity. That is our sin nature until we allow Jesus to do a work in us. So how do we break free from the fear of man? Y'all made it here. How do we break free from the fear of man? Turn to Luke 7. We're going to be reading and, and learning from this incredible woman with the alabaster jar. Luke 7, we find Jesus in his Galilean ministry. So he's traveling from place to place, and he, he's done miracles. He's, seen the work, he's done the work, and now he's been invited to one of the Pharisees' houses to eat. It's Simon's house. And I'll start at verse 36, and it reads like this. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And the woman in the town who was a sinner... Also, you could put in there powerless. Found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her hair. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, This man... If he were a real prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman that is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, hey, Simon. Hey, I have something to say to you, he said. And this is how I think Simon sounds. Yes, teacher. <laughs> I feel like Simon's a little bit of a suck-up, like a little fake. You know what I mean? 
That's literally how Simon sounds. That's literally what he sounds to me. When I read it, that's how I read it, okay? Just go with me. So I hear Jesus, like, incredibly humble, so kind. I'd be like, Simon, you're wild. Jesus was like, Simon, I want to talk to you. So he goes, yes, teacher. So annoying, right? I know. I just I have to read it like, you know, I'm going to teach you how I read it. So he says, yes, teacher. And Jesus replied to him, a creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, Jesus told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who was forgiven little loves little. Oof. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So here's what's happening. I'm going to frame it for you. You have this woman who's a sinner. She's being criticized and ostracized. There's so much to this. She's a woman who will be talked about, looked at, judged. She's a woman with history. She's a woman known in the city as a sinner, and the Pharisees cannot stand her being in the presence of God. She's got a reputation. Her hair is down. She's undignified in that culture. She doesn't care what she looks like. She's just in there because she wants to be with Jesus. And so here's what's even more beautiful. This woman had to count the cost. She had to count the cost before she got into the Pharisee's house. She had to know that she would be talked about and ridiculed. She had to know that there was something at stake here. She had to know that her past would be brought up, that her inefficiency was going to be discussed, right? That her lack would be on the table for all to see. This woman not only washed Jesus' hair with her, with feet with her hair, she washes his feet. So, this is so problematic in the context of, of, of the culture they're in. And yet she actually doesn't care because this woman has been met by Jesus. She has experienced so much forgiveness in her life. She has been in awe of Jesus so much. She has been loved, she's been loved so much that the only thing she can actually consider is worshiping Jesus. The only thing she actually cares about is showing up to that house and giving God everything she ever had. The alabaster jar she broke over Jesus' feet was worth twenty to $40,000 of wages for us today. It was a year's worth of wages for this woman. She took everything she had and she poured it out over Jesus. She took her whole life and poured it out over Jesus because she knew that she had been what? Forgiven much. And so you might be you know, asking yourself right now, well, what does breaking free from fear of man have to do with being forgiven much? This is where I think the disconnect is. See, the woman was able to understand that because she had been forgiven much, she had a new identity. She had a new name. She had a new life. She was, there was confidence flowing through her. 
She didn't care about the people around her. She wasn't concerned about assumptions or perception. She wasn't concerned about people pleasing. She wasn't concerned what Simon was going to say. She took that alabaster jar and she broke it over Jesus' head and anointed him in preparation for his death. This woman had been met with much forgiveness and her life resembled it. She knew it. She had nothing else to lose. She had everything to gain in Jesus. She loved God more than her uncomfortability or her reputation. Her goal wasn't self-preservation, but worship. So how do we actually break free from fear of man? How do, we, how do we actually begin to live like we have been forgiven much? What does it look like for you and I today? So in Luke 7, we see this woman showing up, and she lives from love. Number one is she lives from love. Verse 47 through 49 says that, says that this woman had been forgiven much. I'll read it back for us. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why, say that's why, that's why she loved much. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. The, the, those of us who understand little, how deeply loved we are by God and how deeply forgiven, we'll love little. We will live little lives. But those of us who understand and grasp how deeply loved we are by the Father will live lives in such a way, like this woman, with reckless abandon. We live from love. She knew she had everything to lose, you guys. But she lived from her identity, from her new name, from her worth in Jesus, because she knew she had been forgiven much. Number two, in order to break free from fear of man, we have to die to self. We have to die to self. You can also frame it like this. We have to die to ego. We have to die to ego. I once heard a pastor say that ego meant, meant to edge God out. Edge God out. Verse 44, turning to the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Friends, when we understand how deeply we have been forgiven, there is no room for ego. There is no room for self. Matter of fact, there, there's, what the invitation is here is to pour everything out for Jesus. It's to understand that we, we have nothing to lose when we are following his way, that there's, there's nothing better. See, our existence is part of a larger story, you guys. The kingdom of God is so much bigger than us, and when we hyper-focus on our own little kingdoms, we begin to build it instead of God's. And so this woman shows us there can't be ego when we're living for him. It, it can't matter. It can't matter. We have to be so secure in, in who we are. But the only way to do that is to live from love and not for it. To live from forgiveness and not for it. 
See, I, I think the disconnect is in the fact that we actually do not understand that it's Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that does free us from everything. From everything. I want you to just sit there for a second. It, it really is Jesus' forgiveness for us that sets us free. There, there was no other way around it as I studied it and as I sought you know, God's face for this. He made it so evident and so clear. Alex, tell them that it really is through my forgiveness. It really is through understanding and grasping how much I love them. That is how we break free. That's it. Listen, sometimes I think that God will allow certain seasons where we don't have the affirmation of man so we can find it in God. I think that there will be seasons where our ego has to die where God will walk us through seasons where we cannot find the acceptance, where we cannot find the love, where we are left open and dried up and disillusioned and disappointed every time so that we can know that it's in God who we find it. It's in God where we find it. So there are going to be seasons in life where your ego, where yourself, where your flesh actually has to die. Right? In becoming more like Jesus, we will have to lay some things down. There will be seasons where we are left a little bit disoriented, wondering where the love is. And Jesus is saying, right here. It's right here. Would you look at me? Would you just, would you, would you let me sit with you? Lastly, to break free from fear of man, we have to worship him alone. We must worship him alone. Verse 37, we're back to the top of the story. This is how she came in, and I love it. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. She knew that worshiping him alone was the goal. There was nothing else to live for anymore. She had been met with so much forgiveness and so much love and so much grace that her whole life was now poured out for Jesus. She wasn't worried about anything else other than giving God the glory and the honor. That was it, you guys. And so how do we break free from fear of man? We begin to really live from the love of God from the forgiveness that we've been offered. Not for it. Not for it. Another definition for fear of man that I think is probably the most accurate is idolatry. It's idolatry. Idols are people, places, and things that, we, that steal the attention and the affection of our hearts. We want it more than we want God. We want our dreams and we want our prayers. We want the healing more than we want God. We want things to come our way more than we want God, and the truth is, is that we have to look at that in its face and say to it, I do not want you more than I want Jesus. I do not actually want you more than I want to just pour out my alabaster jar over Jesus' feet and head. Exodus 20, verses four through five is one of my favorite verses when it comes to talking about idolatry, and it says, you must not make any idols. It's pretty plain. I know, isn't it so funny when the Bible's like, and this is it. <laughs> Ain't no nuance to this. 
You must not make any idols. Don't make any statues or pictures of anything up in the sky or of anything on earth, Oof. or of anything down in the water. Don't worship or serve idols of any kind because I, the Lord, am your God. I hate my people worshiping other gods. He literally, that's literally what he said. Exodus 20 verses four through five, God is saying, I don't, I don't want you to worship anything because it's just gonna leave you empty. I actually, I'm telling, I'm warning you that if you go to the world to look for what I can only give you, you're going to be let down. Your heart will break and you will not find love in all the places you're searching, but if only you could break your alabaster jar. If only you could take those little idols, those little gods we have, if only you could take them and say, Jesus, I don't want them anymore. I don't want to worship any of it. I don't want to worship my performance or my acceptance. I don't want to worship my flesh. I don't want ego. I just, I just want you. Am I living for man or for God? Friends, who are we living for? Who is our master? See, what I think is really beautiful is that the alabaster jar, we all have one. We all have an alabaster jar. And I think sometimes we carry this alabaster jar so close to us because we feel like it's the only good thing we've got left. Right? It's the only thing that can define us and we carry it around and we protect it with everything we have. Becoming an idol, building our little kingdoms. What would happen if we just broke that alabaster jar today? What would happen if we really, if we really began to grasp God's eternal love for us. And, that, and that's where I just want you to sit. I want you to stay there. Have you really experienced the transformational forgiveness of Jesus Christ? Have you really allowed his love to, to breathe new life over you? Because that's the secret sauce. That that's the answer. The answer is God's love. The answer is his life, death, and resurrection. That is really it. That's the only thing I can give you because that's the answer. Maybe today is the day where you choose to break that alabaster jar over Jesus. Where you say, God, I repent for, for looking at these things as little gods in my life. God, I'm tired of looking for love in all the wrong places. I'm tired of, of feeling rejected. I'm tired of feeling alone. I'm tired of, of praying for these dreams over and over and then making them a God in my life. I'm just tired, God. It's too much. Maybe you're in here today and this is your first time ever hearing about Jesus. Maybe you're on the podcast and a friend sent this to you. Maybe you're in here and you're doubtful about God. And you're, you're wondering, you know, man, this, this sounds good, but I'm actually not really sure if I could trust him. Maybe your heart is so wounded and so broken that the idea of breaking that alabaster jar is so scary. I just want to just for a second tell you how deeply loved you are by him. I want to tell you that that alabaster jar you have pales in comparison to God's love for you. He really did give his life for you, that there really is abundance and freedom for you today, that there really is more for you than where you've been with God, that there is more that there is peace to be had, that there is freedom to be had, 
when we live from the love of God and not for the love of people, we will experience revival in our lives. But it will take a breaking and it will take a shattering of that jar you've been carrying so close to you. It'll take a breaking of the things that you thought were God. But it'll be so worth it, you guys. It'll be the best thing you've ever done. It's to trust Jesus with all your wounds, with all the heartbreak. The best thing you'll ever do is trust Jesus with your prayers and your dreams because he knows best what to do with them. So I leave you with this. The antidote for fear of man is living, is living fully forgiven. It's living fully forgiven. Actually living fully forgiven from the love of God and not for the love of people. What happens when you're fully forgiven? You take back your identity. You take back the ground that the enemy stole. You take back your mind. You take back your ability to show up in the world and serve the kingdom. You take it all back. And you tell the enemy, no more. No more. I'm done. I'm breaking all of my jars. I'm breaking all of them today. I'm done with it. I'm done with it. You have no power over me anymore. Truth is, people's opinions are not going to set us free. But God's forgiveness will. People's acceptance over us, it's not going to set us free. But God's forgiveness will. Your performance isn't going to set you free, but God's forgiveness will. None of it will set you free, but God's forgiveness will. Today's the day where we break free. Now, if you are under the sound of my voice and you don't follow Jesus, I want you to pray this prayer with me today. You don't have to pray it out loud. You can say it to yourself. And also the friends who are in, in this room today are listening and you're saying, I am, I'm done with, my, with carrying these little alabaster jars of my life. I'm tired. We'll pray this too because we're, we're going to break ties with it today. Jesus, I confess with my mouth and I believe with my heart that you are God. I'm tired of living life on my own. I'm tired of doing this in my own strength. I'm tired of protecting my alabaster jar. And I confess with my mouth that you died and you rose again on the third day to give me grace. Jesus, we want you more than we want the things you've created. We want you more than the created things, God, and we repent forever, thinking more highly of them than you. In Jesus' name, we break ties with fear of man today, and we will live from God's forgiveness and love. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening into Bright City. If this was encouraging, we'd love for you to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. If you're an owner at Bright City, you can give online at brightcity.church or on Venmo to Bright City. Before you go, we'd love to speak this benediction from Matthew 5 over you. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 
We love you, Bright City.